0: Today we have Justin and Salim joining me again from Tokyo. Hey, guys. Hello, hello. Hey, Clark. We've got um, three things we're going to talk about today. Continuing on the theme of childhood dreams from a previous episode where Paul and I talked about some childhood dreams we had in terms of mostly profession or, or vocation and um We've Salim is stepping up today in this episode to talk about his uh, perspectives on childhood dreams. Then uh, we're going to talk about a documentary called Coded Bias as part of our, we talked about this movie club, and uh, we'll delve into some of the, the details of, of that. We've done this on previous episodes where we've taken a documentary and pulled them apart, extracted some of the salient points and what our reaction was to it. And, and uh, then we're gonna finish up with a strange news story, which uh, we promised this time, we're actually going to another part of the world where we found some strange news. Salim found something for us there. And uh, well, first of all, I just wanna start off with a quick COVID update from Japan, that uh, we've been, we were at about a 30% vaccination rate here for first dose in in canada which i think if you compare that to the u.s as an example uh, they're 30 percent for t- two doses so we we feel like we're lagging behind here in terms of our vaccination rate it's not going quickly enough for us however from what i'm seeing in japan this is a, a stark difference um to both Canada and the US in terms of vaccination rates. And I I thought it would be just interesting to hear a little bit of an update from you guys in terms of COVID situation there. The whole vaccination rate, which I understand is exceedingly low in Japan. But do you guys mind just sharing a, a little bit about that? Justin,
1: I know you had a lot, a lot you wanted to say about it, so I'll I'll let you go first here.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'll share and please, Salim, fill in you know the blanks here if I'm, I'm missing something on just the more high level part of it. Uh, my understanding with the vaccination rate is it has escalated, it has gotten better. Um, there was uh, a really big struggle with getting those shots into arms. Um, some initial hiccups, ranging from. Uh, Getting enough medical practitioners to do so, because in Japan, unlike, let's say, for example, the U.S., uh, a doctor has to be present for the administration of the shot. So that causes a bit of a a pinch. Um, They actually, there was an emergency measure that was even announced a couple days ago where they were going to allow for dentists to also administer the shots as well. I saw that, yeah. Yeah. And that was met so, with some
0: criticism, I think, wasn't it? It was. It was. Um,
2: and there's, there's all kinds of different threads we can pull on here. I mean, uh, you know, the Olympics, for example, there's a, a large group of nurses that recently petitioned uh, that they don't want to necessarily be pulled in from all across the country to support the Olympics. They'd rather be in their main municipalities serving the people there because COVID is still very much a real issue right now. Um, the Kansai region, Osaka, is, is dealing with... Uh, an emergency um they're basically having to start to set up certain hospitals as triage um to to figure out how they're going to handle incoming um uh, COVID patients because they're overwhelmed in some of the uh, medical institutions but to your initial point or question about vaccinations and the rates it is getting better um it took about three weeks to do uh, about a million vaccinations first shot <laughs> not Not both rounds, Uh, and then now it's down to about one week a million. But the problem with that is uh, there's 120 odd million people in this country, so that would take two years uh, to to administer, two plus years to administer all those shots if the rate remained as it is. Um, So that's an inherent issue. Um, We are also having specific to COVID, uh, what would now be considered, I guess, a a third or fourth wave. Fourth Fourth wave, wave, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, fourth wave. Yeah. And uh, Osaka is uh, experiencing numbers that are higher than Tokyo consistently, which wasn't the case before. Uh, and Tokyo is still in, in, is week on week, um, you know, comparing Wednesday versus Wednesday and Thursday versus Thursday and so on. Uh, week on week, the numbers are going up uh, anywhere from 10 to 30%. Uh, in from week to week. So it's not a good situation. Um, they have launched a new state of emergency as of, uh, what was it last? Last, um, Saturday, I think.
1: Yeah. 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 So we're, we're a
2: weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the problem is, uh, we're in golden week and, um, people have been through this for now, you know, a year plus there. You want to explain what golden week is for
1: our, our non-japanese sure. viewers oh, sorry not the viewers <laughs> listeners
2: excuse me mm-hmm. so it's it's a string of several official holidays um there are uh, showa no hi, as well as uh, uh Call them all nohi, which is children' greenery days. Day one of There's those days, greenery, yeah. day, greenery day, and I think one other one that falls next week as well. So, usually, most people who work in a, a major domestic company they string along those days as a as a vacation. Um, people don't really take their vacations uh, here, so they're they're oftentimes, um, I wouldn't say encouraged, but. It loosely, Yeah, it, it is kind of the acceptable period where a lot of people do take a break. Um, and it started on Thursday. Uh, so which that would be two days ago, and it goes until Wednesday of next week, but most people bridge it through the following weekend, and it's about a 10 11 day break. Um, so people are kind of tired of the, the lockdowns that they've been in the SOE from last year, which was a little bit more followed, but people are fatigued by that as well. They're also fatigued by the fact that there's enough government ministry officials who keep getting caught going out at night and, uh, getting COVID themselves and then bringing the COVID back into their offices. So younger people, which is where the biggest cluster of the new COVID cases are happening between 20 to 40 years old
0: are, um, similar here by the way.
2: They're out. They're they're having a street beer. They're having a. Um, they're hanging out by, Waseda University near Takadanobaba, and, uh, and they're having a good time. And I, I mean, in some ways, I can't really blame them after everything that they've experienced and what they've seen from a, an official standpoint. Um, from a personal standpoint, uh, my my son's school uh, notified us a few days ago that uh, two members of staff, two teachers. Um, may have come into contact. One of which a spouse was positive, and the other one potentially came into contact. And it turned out that the one whose spouse was positive and also was positive, and then it also turns out a student now is positive, mm. and they've shut down that entire grade. But obviously, the kids interact with other grades during recess and things like that. The school and Tokyo as a whole has kind of been in. I don't want to say it's a full on la la land, but you know, there's definitely a, a fair amount of good fortune and luck in terms of how, how little I think the impact has been on most people's lives um, physically for the most part. With that being said, with variants increasing and uh, especially in Kansai, but now more and more in Tokyo, uh, there is definitely concern amongst medical professionals that, uh, that we're going to be dealing with a rapid increase. And with this current SOE, which is only going to be two weeks long, uh, so they can welcome the IOC president, Mr. Bach, into town without an SOE happening. Um, so what's the SOE? Uh, state of emergency. State of emergency, okay. yeah. So basically the state of emergency is pretty toothless. Um, it, they want businesses to not serve alcohol and to have restaurants and department stores and everything like that closed by 8 p.m., um, there, that is the only thing that there's a financial incentive that the government is helping subsidize some of that. And they're giving a certain amount of money per day for being closed at a, and also not serving the alcohol. If they do serve the alcohol, then they don't qualify for these subsidies. Uh, it's a reverse penalty in a way. Mm. Um, so it's only going to happen for, it's only going to last for about two weeks, and then Mr. Bach is going to come into town. And, you know, they can put on their grand show and say everything's ready to go, and then uh, be full steam ahead for the Olympics. At least that's how it seems the plan is as it
0: stands. This, this um, from where I sit, hearing about the Olympics actually having a, a chance to go forward it seems really surprising to me. Uh, I get it that. This was pushed off from last year. But to me, the, where the world is right now, uh, yes, the US. high rate of vaccinations and uh, UK is, is getting vaccinated pretty quickly. I, I still find this surprising that that a group of countries are, would actually send their athletes to Japan to compete in these games. I understand the stakes and the amount of work that went into this from both the host country, but, and the, yeah, the money, of course, um, the hopes and dreams and, and all that of, of the athletes. I, I have one, athlete, one friend of mine who is, she's, she's going to be competing in the Paralympic games. She's a, um, she's a, a rower and she actually came out of retirement to do the Tokyo Olympics. And of course one year delayed gets her one year older. And, uh, but all that being said, it just seems surprising to me. And I get it. We've seen a lot of other sports out there being revived. I mean, NHL has been going since last year and major league baseball is playing. Now they're playing in front of fans, even, um, some places more than others. Um, F1 racing's back on, I think, without fans. I don't know if they've got fans at all in their crowds. But So there are other sporting events that are seeing the games being, or their events being held either without fans or with limited fans, or in some case, all fans. But the whole international aspect of the Olympics, and you could say F1's pretty international too, but they're at least going no fans, and I know that might be the way they do the Tokyo Olympics. It just to me, I just can't see this going. And I even hear 80% of the Japanese population doesn't want it to happen, which, which, uh, I don't know if that's debatable or not, whether that's 70 to 80% sentiment against doing the game. I think that's true. I mean,
1: you just have to think about the fact that obviously it's easy for us to, to blame governments and to uh, place blame on on people right and i'm sure there's been a lot of ineptitude uh, and that's understandable and it's all very frustrating but it, it's a lot of this is just a really impossible situation right what do you do uh, and something like the olympics where the japanese government and the tokyo metropolitan government i think that it, it to date it, this is going to be the most expensive olympics ever right if if i am mean, Not even if held, they've already invested uh, more money than any other Olympics uh, games in the past. So it's almost understandable, and that's just the money, right? It's almost understandable, and this is taxpayer money, of course, that they want to get something back out of this. Uh, Now, the fact that people in Japan are worried about this uh, about hosting the games is is totally understandable in a country that has barely gotten its covid situation under control and, and and of course our situation was never as bad as some some other countries um but you know to the vaccination point for instance we're not we haven't even vaccinated 1% of our population right uh we've barely we've barely vaccinated uh essential medical staff let alone the elderly and a lot of that is also as a result of government ineptitude right uh japan's bottlenecked itself massively in relying mainly on the eu to supply its its vaccines we don't we don't develop any here we don't manufacture any here locally Uh, and every vaccine shipment to Japan, every single one has to be authorized by the EU to, to leave the EU. And that's just, and, and obviously the EU, uh, up, up until recently has had their own, uh, vaccination rate issues, uh, as well. So they were obviously weren't prioritizing the export of vaccines as well. So it's just a, a, a confluence of all these different factors that make no. this really a, a difficult s- situation there's no right answer right but i think you're right it's going to be incredibly difficult i think to actually hold these olympic games and and also to your point what country would want to send their their best and brightest athletes to a place where they might contract this virus. Right. And, and get sick. And, uh, I don't know, no one hopes for this to happen, but if someone dies you know, who's you know, who takes the
2: blame for that. Right. Yeah. It's like putting on a, it's like putting on a music event. If, if you don't have insurance for the, the, the music event or for the film production, nothing gets off the ground. So to me, the insurance carriers probably are going to play a role in this one, you know, coming up to the actual Olympics. Some of these, I don't know if these policies have stayed intact, if they had a timeline on them for whenever they were originally supposed to go in 2020 and they had to create new policies. That part is something I'm thinking in the back of my head, and then right now, simultaneous, there's a bunch of host cities around Japan that are supposed to host different parts. Like you know, one one city's supposed to host the you know the, the polo team of India in this city. Another town is supposed to host the equestrian club of this city, you know, of this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of those cities are pulling out. You know, they they they're eating the initial investment that they made because the city's no longer comfortable with hosting. A group of athletes and their contingent in that city. So, will Japan have places for all of these people? Yes, there's Olympic Village, but when athletes come in, they have to have a training place. They have to have a place that they're that's their kind of their main base. They sure they sleep in the Olympic Village, but their main base so they can actually prep and be ready for their actual competition is a different story. I, I don't I don't know. I mean, the, the first shot over the bow happened recently, where. I think the Australian team was supposed to come in for a test event, and that's typical of you know leading up to an Olympics. A few months before, you have some friendlies, some meets, and they were supposed to come in, and they canceled it. They said, no, we can't come into Japan. It's not safe. So that was the first kind of salvo. Who knows?
0: I also saw that the Olympic village where the athletes would be living, has um, it's already spoken for in terms of, being um once it's over there'll be housing i don't know if it's community housing or if it's just regular housing it's very expensive housing people are waiting to <laughs> okay not no. community housing then probably yeah. um so there's people that are waiting to move in yeah. to their homes right. once this is over that have also been pushed back and that's that's a whole bunch of stuff i'm sure that uh that makes up part of this story but uh well i mean i Let's face it, who doesn't want to see the Olympics happen? Um, you know, a year ago there was this starving for <laughs> Justin doesn't want to see the Olympics happen. I I I mean, let's let's say outside of COVID and outside of all the the risks involved, n- most people probably don't want to see it happen. Um, mm. but the nobody wants to not have the Olympics in a normal situation. This is a, usually a really cool time of the the year to see countries competing against one another. I I and enjoy sports it. that a
1: lot of people um, don't regularly get to see. Right, and 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 for those sure. athletes, it's incredibly important as well. Like some of these minor sports, they just don't get the coverage that uh, yeah. you know yeah. that other major sports gets apart from uh, during the Olympics.
0: Yeah. Very true. Yeah. I, I was um, at
2: I was at Shea Stadium. After 9-11 uh, at the first sporting event in New York, uh, the Mets played that night, and it was very emotional in the crowd, and it was very uplifting because people felt like there was this place that they were kind of coming together and starting to heal from a tragedy. Yeah, But doing the Olympics now, to me, personally feels just selfish. It doesn't really feel... Like, we're rallying around something. We haven't beaten anything yet. (laughs) I feel like we're George Bush standing on the carrier saying, mission accomplished, and (laughs) we haven't actually
0: done anything. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. no, yeah. Well, I think we'll just leave it there. We'll see what develops. I mean, it's less than 90 days, I think, out to uh, when this is supposed to start. So, we're going to see, I guess, they're going to have to make some decisions. I do remember the, the heels that were being dug in last year where mm-hmm. and on a lot of different events that said no absolutely we're per, we're pushing ahead we're forging ahead this is gonna happen i i found just a will final finish on this that i just find sometimes when you listen to the japanese politicians they sort of throw it up there as in well what, what do you expect we're supposed to wait like to hold these like at, at some point enough <laughs> is enough like um you know it's it's like, well, yeah, maybe. Maybe <laughs> yeah. we do have to wait. Maybe we do have to cancel it. Um, he goes, you know, there's only so often that you can keep pushing it off. And, um, yeah, that's, that's the world that we're in right now. So, well, hopefully, uh, we'll see what happens. I, I don't want to say hopefully it goes on because I, I'm like you, Justin. I feel conflicted as, as well. I, I just can't see it. I mean, okay, well, let's, let's do it right now. I, I want a quick quick poll. Are the games in Tokyo going to go ahead in that they will be able to, to say the Olympics in Tokyo were held in 2021? <laughs> is it going to happen? My vote is it's not going to happen. Or my, not my vote, but my opinion, my prediction is these Olympic games will not happen. Period. I, I, th- I think I
2: think that... If the other, or, yes, I do think it's going to happen. Um, I, I don't think it's going to happen because of a decision made on this side. Uh, I, I don't think there will be that proactive um, uh, decision made. I think the decision will be, have to be made for uh, the Japanese uh, Olympic Committee or the Japanese government there, because so far they've been pushing it off on the IOC. So um, for for for. for whether it be inaction or ineptitude, um, I I think it will. I I agree. Um, It will happen.
1: It will be shoved through, basically. And uh, they're going to tell the the various National Olympic committees, send people if you want, and if you don't want, then tough luck to them.
0: But just some way to get the games done. they'll,
1: They'll push it through. Okay. Absolutely
0: second second prediction will the united states have athletes at this olympics
1: yes yes because b- because it the u.s be is un- able to un-American. vaccinate their their athletes <laughs> right and, and that uh
0: so they'll be able the, to go in there knowing they're
1: knowing, they're, knowing they're protected yeah absolutely and uh, yeah they're going to be in it to win it i think
0: there'll be a political will too yeah yeah yeah, hmm.
2: I
1: think there'll be some political
2: will behind it as well. I think that uh, some of the, the you know, we're America, you know, group will will absolutely kind of beat for, their chest and say, no, we we can't not show for America.
1: Up. It's a you win. Know, this is would be for American. America. It's a win to we're say, yeah, exactly. We're, yeah, we're vaccinated. Uh, you know, we've got it all under control, and we're sending our athletes to represent the U.S. and our success on the world stage.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll, we shall see. We'll regroup on this, uh, I'm sure, a couple (laughs) more times before the actual games, assuming they go ahead, and then we'll be able to go through our predictions uh, with hindsight. Okay, moving into childhood dreams. Salim, you stepped up to uh, talk a little bit today about your childhood dreams. And in a previous episode, Paul and I talked about the childhood dreams that um, him and I had more of a focus on me than Paul in that episode. But uh, my dream had always been to be the next Peter Jennings or to be the next um, Vin Scully, maybe of the sports (laughs) world Um, in terms of baseball broadcasting, grew up admiring people in that field, have a few heroes that I, I constantly looked at and said, I want to be like that guy. But my parents didn't want me to go to school for for radio and television, and and they were also in control of the money and of how course. it was spent in terms of my yeah. tuition. So um, I went into a very liberal arts program, and um, I, Paul and I did talk about how in the, at least in Canada you're forced at a relatively young age to pick a education track. Um, at 18, you kind of have to know, especially if you're going to specialize in something, if you want to be a doctor, if you want to be a lawyer, if you want to be a, a broadcaster, you, when you leave high school and go into post-secondary education, it's difficult to—not impossible, but difficult to, say, do something liberal, like sort of open— for a couple years and then decide, oh, well, I'll be a doctor or I'll be a, a radio personality right, or whatever. Yeah. So, we, we kind of get forced into it, in a sense, to make these decisions, like I said, especially if you want to get into something specialized. So, the tendency is usually to either do that, and, and it should be something that you're going to make, be able to make a living at. Um, most parents want their kids to take up a, you know, if you say, I'm going to be a history major, the first thing most parents are going to say to their kids are well what are you going to do with that <laughs> right yeah um be a history teacher be a historian you know how much money are you going to in yeah. the teacher side um yeah you can you can make a living at that but uh, other than that what are you going to do and i used to get that with my english major choice which i did end up Picking mostly because my math just wasn't strong enough to uh, (laughs) get me into another type of thing. So, I had to get into more of um, something very liberal, something wide-ranging and kind of figure it out later. But in the back of my mind, I always wanted to, really wished I had been at the Ryerson radio and television program where I was learning about journalism and and TV and production and stuff. So
1: Couldn't English, I suppose... English or that track could have gotten you into journalism as well, right?
0: I think that was something I imagined to be the case. Um, Right. But, you know, the longer you go, the more you start realizing, well, okay, two years, I'm going to finish my, get my degree here. And then at some point I'm expected to go get a job and make money. (laughs) So after three years of university, uh, getting my English major, Okay, then I go into radio television, and there's another two years or so of holding off making a living. So right. So yeah, that's, so it just got me thinking. The reason I, I like this topic is because I often wonder, you know, I've heard people say, what you, if you really want to know what your passion is, ask yourself, what did you want to be when you were a kid?" Yeah. And whether you believe in that or not, I mean, when I was a kid, I wanted to be everything from a baker to a bus driver to <laughs> a fireman to, yeah. to a radio broadcaster. Um, but I wanted to, to tackle or take apart a little bit of those things that you dreamed of, Salim, when you were a kid, and whether or not you had any regrets, you didn't pursue those things. Were those just pipe dream dreams anyway, and you knew you really weren't going to try to pursue them. But I, <laughs> I thought yeah. we could tackle a little bit of if we have time, even what if you had pursued it, where would you be today? Would you be right, miserable? Yeah. And I know it's, <laughs> would you be happier? And I know it's so hard to predict, right? I mean, I wouldn't be married to my wife if I had gone into broadcasting. Cause I met my wife through work. So, um, so yeah, that's true. Yeah, you you've had a little bit of time to think about this from our yeah. prep chats and knowing this was a topic, and you've you volunteered. So share with yes, us a little yeah. bit about your cup, what your childhood dream was growing up, right. and where where yeah, it went. So,
1: <laughs> so uh, for me, it was a little bit interesting. Um, my first, the first. Job or the first career that I ever thought I wanted to have was lifeguard, and (laughs) and I think first of all, a lot of kids look at jobs in which people wear uniforms or have like special equipment and find that pretty cool because it's pretty easy to relate to. And I I was really just one of those kids as well. It's like the
0: fireman, policeman thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And but the reason why I wanted to be a lifeguard was actually a little bit interesting when I was about four years old, uh, Baywatch, the, the lifeguard, uh, (laughs) TV series drama, uh, was, was airing on TV. (laughs) Yeah. David Hasselhoff, Pamela Anderson. And, uh, I was just, yeah, really like three four years old and and that would be on the TV and I just thought like that's so cool the the equipment that they have is really cool like the beach buggies and uh and the you know lifeguard pickup trucks and and the jet skis I'm like wow that's like that's what I wanted to do when uh when I grew up uh, and that's where it all started for me and from there on I think. I've just jumped, you know, flip flopped from one career dream to another. And
0: uh, well, let me, I just want to ask you about the yeah. lifeguard thing for a sec. So, this was something that I thought about in when I was talking about the broadcasting career and wanting to be, to go into that space was what really was the job? You know, mm. when you look at Peter Jennings or, vin scully or hear them you imagine this job to be what you see right so you see right yeah a guy in a suit or a guy in a shirt and tie and he's on tv and he's got lights and there's activity going on behind him he's speaking in a very authoritative voice he's someone you trust he comes on the same time every day my dad watched it, so it was something I did with my dad. Which, so, But the job, what it was, was to me what I saw on TV, but that was probably 5% of the job. Right, yeah. And yours, yours is a little different. It's a TV show and you're seeing what's going on. But it was interesting because I did a very similar thing. I looked at really what was only 5% of the job, the rest was the planning, the being out in the field, um, all the work that went into those. Probably after commercials, sixteen minutes of on-air time. A lot of
1: studying as well.
0: Right. That's but that's yeah. what I wanted to be when I grew up was the guy right. sitting in the chair, versus all the other stuff that goes into being. You know the the ninety-five percent of the, the work that goes to yeah, get there uh, in the background. Yeah, and and so I don't, what about again, being Sorry to jump in. So what about being the man in the chair was appealing to you? Well, he trusted. The trusted guy that everybody was tuning into. You know, there was the three big networks, right? I think he was ABC. And there were three options for news back then. You had Dan Rather, you had Tom Broca, and you had Peter Jennings. And I liked Peter Jennings in particular because he was he was Canadian, and he he just had this look of trust to me. He was a good-looking guy. He he just, I love the way he looked and, and the way he mm. sounded. That was the job I wanted. But is that what going into radio and television was? My parents looked at that and said, okay, that guy is one in, in 100 million that gets there. Mm. They perhaps yeah. saw the path it would take to get a quarter of the distance and probably said, you're going to end up in some small newsroom in in um, I'm not going to pick on small towns, but in Brandon, Manitoba, or um, you know, someplace way up northern BC, where you're going to work in a, a radio station and making like twenty six thousand dollars a year or something. Yeah, twenty four people. Yeah. So. Anyway, I didn't mean to pull it off of this, but what I what struck me when I heard you say jet skis, um, the jeeps and things that they would rip around, and that's what you mm-hmm. saw. You didn't. I imagine you weren't thinking about necessary. Maybe saving lives. Okay, maybe you were thinking. Oh, about Oh yeah, that. yeah, yeah, totally. But you like, saw all these cool out, yeah. toys, and you saw good looking people, and you saw nice weather. Or did you see more? Did you see all the other elements of it, and that that also attracted you to it?
1: Uh yeah I mean I think it was obviously the the element of saving people that was that was also really appealing be, being someone like you said who's trusted by the community right you trust your your local lifeguards to to be there to to help you in your time of need and that was certainly appealing uh, and and all the various side missions that they went on—that was all very very cool, right? And of course, this is all on TV, yeah. so a lot of it's going to be very very much exaggerated. But it was it was definitely the the heroic element of of the lifeguard job, but also the the cool toys and and being able to just when you're not when you don't have to work, just being able to chill on the beach—that was uh, <laughs> that was really appealing as well. Yeah. So that's that's really where it all started.
0: Did it go beyond that? Did you think uh, like how old were you when you you said three or four?
1: Yeah, I was like three or four,
0: very young. Have you ever looked back and said, "Wish I had pursued that"? Because lifeguards could are often like for a lot of people, um, they're a a part of their growing up. Like they become lifeguards at sixteen or something and do that for a couple summers, and then they while they're putting themselves through school. I'm assuming you didn't see lifeguarding as a vocation for the rest of your life
1: no, no I mean and, and you know like, like i said i was I was really young uh, and I think it would have been but two two, three years after that i I'd, I'd already moved on to something else and and that next thing was actually uh wanted to be a pilot right so again uh, the cool toys right the uniform uh, respected uh, as well right and uh, uh, also I, I grew up fairly internationally as well I, I the first time I got on a plane I was literally a, a few months old uh, and that was my first international uh, flight obviously I, didn't, I don't I don't remember anything of it of course but uh, I felt very Closely connected to airplanes, and I still I'm still a bit of a of an of an aviation geek to this day, and I really love it. So, uh, pilot was was one of those things that I wanted to be, and I, I aspired to be a pilot for a few years. Uh, after you know, after deciding that that was something that I'd be interested in pursuing at maybe
2: age uh, six or so. So, uh, how but, deep are we talking about here with the with the flight and uh and pilot geekdom are we saying like you know entry level like a few flight simulators into certain planes or are we saying like full-bore you know kind of like train otaku here in, in japan
1: uh i mean i i don't no i'm not i wouldn't say not full-blown like if full-blown means you know you're going to the nearby airport right. every weekend right. to go uh, photograph planes uh no i don't it, it's not to that level but i'm i'm geek enough to uh on on a weekend tune into like the aircraft control right. uh like channels like radio channels and just listen to that hmm. uh while opening the uh like the open source uh, maps like the you know uh, the radar maps so you can see uh what planes are going where and, and when like if a, if a plane is flying over i can generally identify what kind of airplane it is so not full on full on but nearly there i guess definitely a fan <laughs> definitely a fan that's for sure so that was that was something that was really close to my heart uh, for a very long time. I wanted to do it as a career, uh, was really serious about it uh, until I moved on to the next thing, right? And this was now when I was a little bit older, must have been when I was um, starting high school. And I realized that I was very interested in in diplomacy. (laughs) And I wanted to become a diplomat. Mm. But that's where things got a little bit complicated for me personally, because I have multiple citizenships, uh, and um, my my father is from from Egypt and my mother is from Japan. Uh, but I was I was born in the States. The dilemma of okay, you can I could want to become a diplomat, but diplomat of what country? Right? Who are you? Who do you represent? right and th- and that was actually a quite a, a challenging uh challenging problem for me where egypt was out by default i couldn't be become a diplomat representing egypt because uh in in egypt you need all all four of your grandparents to be egyptian uh otherwise you can't even get a job in the government there yeah, so that was uh that was a, that was a prerequisite that uh, i would not have been able to meet so, are you are was, you
0: fully f- uh, fluent in Arabic?
1: Yeah, yeah, I am fl- fl- fully fluent in Arabic. So you had that. Uh, I, I lived in uh, I lived in Egypt from the first grade to the twelfth grade. Okay. So okay. all of my formal education, formal primary education up till college was in Egypt. So I was I was certainly fluent in Arabic, a lot more fluent in Arabic than I am in Japanese still to this day. So uh, it's it's definitely my second language after English, or almost on par with English and uh i think i was very closely attached to egypt at that point as well uh, so having lived there obviously but it was um it was not going to be a a possibility and then i thought well what about japan and uh, at that point i was still, i could not really speak japanese at that point so mm-hmm. that was really off the table then uh as well didn't think that that would work and then the third option was the united states and Having not lived in the US or having only lived in the US till I was about six years old, what attachment do I have to the US? And uh, at, at, at the time as well, it was. Um, uh, it was uh, President Bush in, in in government. It was a Republican uh, Republican government in the U.S. And I didn't necessarily very closely identify with Republican values. And and when you think if you're going to represent a company, uh, sorry, a country and and its values, uh, like I think they need to be. At least somewhat aligned with what you personally believe in as well, and um, and obviously they were fighting two wars in the Middle East as well at the time, and I was I was really thinking, well, is this really what is this the country that I want to represent? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that was. Meanwhile, that was a it bit might of a have challenge. been a great
0: country for you to represent because of your background and the well, exactly, the, yeah. the, what you might have brought to the table. But I don't know that that's how they look at how when they hire people for. And I don't even know how that word. Did you get that far in? I mean, you you put a lot of thought. Oh into yeah, this, yeah. I, Did you find out like what's what qualifies someone to be a diplomat? It's it's actually very wide
1: ranging. So you can come from uh, any any variety of different disciplines, and uh, you take some. Sci- they have they have their own tests and uh, and and interview processes, but uh, discipline is. Uh, you know if if you're if you're willing and interested and in, and have something that that you can offer them uh it doesn't really matter what what kind of background or what kind of discipline you come from and uh for me i would i imagine that uh, i would have been someone that they would have been interested in taking particularly because i i spoke fluent arabic and uh for the u.s state department at least they they really value uh candidates who speak other languages mm. so if i if yeah. i had japanese as well at, at the time uh, or you know even, even today right uh, if i if i go to them and say well i speak japanese and arabic and uh, and i have a basic understanding of, uh, of french as well th- that would uh, certainly take a lot of boxes i'd assume uh but yeah I, I decided not to pursue that it it's always been sort of in the back of my mind maybe something internationally uh till till this day uh like a un kind of thing but yeah uh di- diplomacy is is diplomacy and international relations those worlds are um challenging to say the least right mm-hmm. it's not yeah. it's not as straightforward or, or as glorious as one may imagine and uh, as I've, as i've grown and, and gotten to meet a lot of people who are in these uh, disciplines uh, who are in these um, kind of jobs diplomats uh, national dip- for representing governments and uh and internationally un diplomats as well the the kind of horror stories you hear uh with regards to the to the to the work that they do and the uh, and often the uh, the hurdles that they face in trying to do what you think makes sense uh it's so if you it's it, um yeah
0: i'm going to just going to say so lifeguard pilot diplomat money no yeah. object which one would you pick um today i'd uh, i probably still say
1: diplomat I'd I would love to be a diplomat, even knowing how challenging it is and uh, how often it d- difficult it is to to get anything done. I, I would still do that because it's just a a type of career that I that I am attracted to, and I think uh, the skills that I have would uh, would be reasonable uh, re- work reasonably for for a job like uh, for a career like that
0: how did your parents factor into any of this? Were they a part of the thinking behind your vocation? Like how influential were they in what you chose to pursue vocationally?
1: Yeah. So that's, that's another interesting uh, topic actually, because uh, when I was, like I said, I was in Egypt until high school and uh, when it was time to decide what I was going to do in terms of uh, college, I, really wanted to just stay in Egypt and, uh, I wanted to to pursue law, uh, law, international law in the hope that maybe it could lead to something in in the diplomacy route, uh, whatever that may, whatever that may be. Uh, but eventually my, my parents who did have quite a bit, a bit of influence convinced me that I should go to Japan and uh and the reason for that is because my, my mother's japanese but uh, and i am japanese as well but i couldn't speak the language i barely knew anything about the culture so they said why well, just go to japan and uh, and learn the language and learn about the culture that might work well for you and, and i thought well yeah maybe why not let's let's give that a go <laughs> and uh so i I did some research, looked at uh, universities in J- in Japan that could that offer offer tuition in English, and uh, and I found one and I applied. Didn't really put too much effort into it, but I, w- I was lucky enough to get in. I got accepted, so I was like, okay, sure. I'm, I guess I'm going to Japan now, and uh, and that was. Uh, uh, the the faculty that I joined was was a liberal arts liberal arts faculty as well, yep. <laughs> uh, where I studied in international business and economics. Uh, I was a terrible student. I you know I got like Bs and Cs all the time. I was like really really bad. <laughs> but uh, you know as as you grow uh, from there and, and and throughout college and you mature and you start thinking about money and then and I, I took a, a student loan as well to, to get into college and and then. You start really thinking, right? Okay, now I need to think about money as well. So, right uh, it, when you, when you're thinking about careers, now it's not just what, what do you what do you want to be, but what's gonna where are you gonna get the best bang for your buck based on your education as well? And uh, and at first, I actually thought that was going to be in in the energy uh, sector, in oil and gas, where again, similar to diplomacy. Uh, I wanted to use my my language skills, my knowledge, especially of the Middle East, where Japan, uh, where I was now living, imports. Uh, I think it's still eighty percent of its of its oil and gas from from the Middle East. Mm. I thought, okay, that might be uh, that might work. Uh, oil was over a hundred bucks a barrel back in those days, and uh, and I thought it was obviously pretty lucrative. So I thought that that might be uh, that might be a, a, a great a great um, that might work well for my for my career going forward and uh, and 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 pay reasonably well. But what I you know in, in my search for for a career in oil, I stumbled upon insurance at a at a career fair in in Boston in in the U.S. Where this was this career fair that where they were looking for. Japanese English bilingual students and uh, an American insurance company that had an operation in Japan, Uh, I stumbled upon their booth by mistake and uh, by chance rather. That's what and, they say uh, about
0: this business of insurance. It's yeah, typically something you stumble into. Yeah,
1: everyone just stumbles into it, right? <laughs> and, and it was exactly the same for me because I obviously had no interest in insurance at that point. But they, it, you know, they the recruiters there talked about how uh, insurance companies also insure uh, energy companies, and I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. So you can that's where insurance and energy first connected and uh i thought well, let's give this a go i i did some research uh, i found that insurance pays reasonably well uh and uh on a you know if if you look at every dollar for every dollar you get paid for for every hour worked it actually um, looked a lot better than a lot of other industries uh that even those industries that paid quite well. So I thought, well, I don't want to work too hard, but I want to get paid reasonably well. So maybe insurance is going to be the career path for me. And a few interviews later, I got I got accepted, um, and um, here I am still today in the insurance industry, still insuring energy companies. Uh, so uh, worked out pretty well. But it's um, it's funny how lifeguard morphed into. Uh, insurance man <laughs> after uh 20 20 odd
0: years yeah you could say that well the glamour of lifeguarding with buggies and and jet skis um the equipment the pilot side you know you're you're in charge of some very important expensive equipment there's some elements of that in the insurance industry i suppose as yeah, well absolutely and it yeah, is funny absolutely. how you can almost take anything and bring it back to the insurance business like if you're if you're a sports fan you could potentially get into sports insurance and um no absolutely it is it is a good career and and obviously not the focus of the segment per se but the insurance career it it can be linked back to so many different things that um and it, it it's a fairly decent living at the end of the day and you know if you throw some ambition and and hard work into it it does it can pan out to be quite an interesting vocation absolutely
1: yeah absolutely
0: this episode is brought to you by pace painting pace painting serving all your painting needs whether commercial or residential reach pace painting at paintwithpace at at gmail.com or via their facebook page pace painting inc or call peter at 289-356-7744 paint with pace this is almost what we could have made the whole episode about was this uh (laughs) childhood dreams um but we better move into our coded bias we talked about this movie club conversation um we decided to talk about a documentary called coded bias today and it's a bit of a it's funny i was thinking about our last one the pharmacist and that you know there were some spoiler alerts we needed to throw up there in the beginning and i'd argue that coded bias doesn't really have too much of a need for for a spoiler alert but for those who haven't seen the documentary who would prefer to watch it before they listen to what we're going to talk about um you can always come back and and to this part of the episode and after you've watched the documentary it's about 90 minutes I think Um, but if you just want to get the Cole's Notes version or the um, that's what we called it here anyway the Cole's Notes Cliff's Notes um, Cliff's Notes yeah yeah Hmm. the sort of abridged cheat sheet for what what's this 90 minutes all about and how can we hear from us three who can talk about it in maybe 10 or 12 minutes or or a little longer um justin it was your turn to pick i picked the pharmacist which uh was a a four episode documentary it was a little heavy um it was your you were up next to pick and you, you you chose coded bias um What, uh, what made you choose it and, um, what, what's it about?
2: Yeah, sure. So, uh, answering the first part, uh, what made me choose it is it's been a present topic. It's been something in tech that's been a prevalent conversation and something that actually ties back to the documentary and some things that have developed recently. But basically, uh, tech as an industry struggles with diversity uh, it struggles with having representation in a lot of different levels, uh, most especially in management and in board, in board positions. But in the relevance of this documentary and what this documentary is about, it's about coding. It's people who work at the um, engineer level, coding level, who are writing the scripts, writing the algorithms, writing the things that inform how a program runs and how software runs, and. Inherently, there are some challenges. Uh, The challenges are if the code is being written only by one group of people, let's say, for example, in this case, most often it's being written by white male, then there are certain issues that are going to arise in the coding, as they kind of expressed in some of the documentary, um, that it is going to reflect history at that time that has occurred up to that point. And let's say the world is changing and the world is reflecting a new standard going forward. The code may not represent that because it's being re- it's being written based on history. So this documentary focuses on a young woman named Joy, who is an MIT researcher, who in essence um, was doing some some project that where she was trying to use a facial recognition software and the software couldn't recognize her and she is African American, and she is of a darker complexion, as she said, and it, it especially these facial recognition softwares especially struggle with um, darker skinned faces, especially female. Um, it kind of goes on a sliding scale from white male all the way to um, dark skinned female in terms of how well the software or how effective the software was in recognizing the face and matching it to um, their database. And what it forced her to start to face was, okay, um, what kind of issues are there? How is unconscious bias impacting coding Um, with data being a reflection of history? How susceptible is the technology to bias and where did the discrimination creeps in? And, it does a good job of tying certain things to the more general challenges within uh, the tech industry. I think that this documentary, and you, you, you asked the question, why I picked this documentary. I picked it because uh, diversity and inclusion is a big part of the the work I've done in the past in my consulting work. It's a passion. It's something that um, I'm I'm somebody who champions. Having diverse voices in the room, uh, whether they be of uh, different ethnicity, uh, sex, uh, creed, uh, education, religion, whatever. Uh, diversity is a strength. It's uh, it's more effective in risk mitigation. It's better in ideation. Uh, and it, uh, it usually is the lifeblood of an organization. And uh, it is something that I was very interested in. And I picked this documentary. And after watching it, I will have to say right here at the front end that... Uh, it is lacking. <laughs> this documentary was very thin. Um, there's a lot of kind of stretching in different areas. Uh, there's a lot of filler. Um, we can you know, go into that in a second, but just the, the more general uh, overview of this is uh, they're focusing on the premise of facial recognition in AI, and they're trying to tie it in relation to overall Um, in how it affects coding and how it affects uh, maybe bias in 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 technology in general Uh, it does touch on a few other things uh, about how they can lead to kind of an Orwellian state Uh, it does kind of touch on some things around stats and figures and corporate surveillance and maybe even the Chinese uh, social scoring and -hmm. things like that which is a whole other thing (laughs) because that that whole thing was really weird I have I have a a loose theory on how they represented that later. Um, but uh, the challenge I found in this was the documentary is painting this picture that it's a topic that's being discussed. It's being discussed in Capitol Hill, uh, it's a topic that is uh, becoming something that's affecting people of varying economic classes. Uh, whether it be in their housing or in being able to apply for loans and how the algorithm does those things. And it, it really paints this picture of, uh, kind of like a hopefulness and the really big challenge is, um, uh, companies own the algorithms. Companies are in control of this and, um, To leave it just to these large corporate bohemists, these, you know, what did they say? It was uh, nine nine companies, I think six in the U.S. and three in China.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: To leave it to these nine companies, in essence, to dictate how we shape um, the world, in essence, and how we interact with a lot of the world, uh, is a really scary proposition. And some of the very people that they featured in this in this uh, documentary, obviously this thing came out about a year ago. Um, they're no longer there. They're one of the people they kept showing, this ethicist at Google, she got fired. Um, two or three of these major ethicists, it's been in recent news over the last three or six months. They, they just, some companies will use a diversity position as a PR role. Mm-hmm. And just the same way Google mm-hmm. and these other companies that have been lambasted for how they've handled uh, their their diverse hiring and their presence of diversity in their coding and and algorithm teams. And they'll hire ethicists um, to look internally and to try and work towards something towards the future. And then when, when the PR kind of, when the noise dies down, they push those people out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I've, Feel strongly that this this documentary, you know, they only had a couple of elements, and they tried to pull it all in. And I think they probably would have done better to just focus on one or two. It was was kind of all over the
0: place. It did Um, go did go all over. There was a bunch. There was about five or six. I I kind of lost count of how many different stories they were telling of various people, whether it was the teacher and his value added score and how he got pushed out of the school system due to some algorithms. the guy that was stopped in the outside the London subway there because he was covering his face and didn't want to be picked up by the facial recognition software. Obviously, the, the main protagonist, Joy, in her story right at the top with the facial recognition not picking her up. There was the Brownsville Towers, I think it was, the apartment mm-hmm. complex, or the Atlantic Towers in Brownsville, New York, and their whole plight against the landlord trying to install facial recognition software there was the social credit scoring in china Mm -hmm. which i guess they were trying to use as a a, you know the difference between north america or the western world and china um on one hand it's it's disturbing this whole social credit score thing but Mm -hmm. one, one thing i really thought was very apparent that they they mention is that at least the chinese are they're not trying to um pull a wool over anyone's eyes they're quite open about it hey Mm -hmm. you're being Mm -hmm. surveyed you're being tracked you have a Mm -hmm. credit score behave Mm -hmm. make sure your Mm -hmm. families behave i think they uh they use the term it's like algorithmic Mm -hmm. obedience training in china um yeah so there were a lot of stories around this and probably to and the trust the parolee and what happened to her when she was um, yeah, on parole and how they ran her through an algorithm and she was seen as a dangerous, a high likelihood of repeating her offenses, but none of her good things that she was doing once she got out of, out of jail or once she got working, none of that was recognized. Um, we... There were a lot of stories. So if you go back to the how it was framed, I think there was, or how how it was structured, a lot of different stories to pack into ninety minutes. Um, what stood out for for you, Salim, out of each of the stories? If I if I can just ask you, which story maybe disturbed you the most, or, or impacted you the most out of the various stories we heard in this documentary? Yeah. So I think one of the there were two
1: things, right? One the inherent bias in facial recognition. To be honest, I I really wasn't too surprised. Um, I, was,
0: I was I was surprised, surprised that by it. I think I wasn't but I was. I think I didn't have an, any idea. I didn't think about it, let's put it that way. So it was surprising yeah. to me. Yeah,
1: I mean there are, there are two aspects to, to it.
0: One I was surprised that no one
1: figured out that there would be this bias. Uh, on the other hand i thought i'm not i wasn't surprised because let's say you know the average person right and, and obviously these people who are creating these systems aren't aver- the average people uh they say well we want to create great facial recognition software um let's feed this let's feed the machine because in, in, it's basically machine learning right let's feed, let's feed this machine uh photos of all the faces of people that um, that we can publicly get in the public domain and let's say this is this is US based right and they say well we're we're going to do this proportionally uh, based on on the US population the i think America is what at least 50% white um, racially speaking so and and the black proportion i think is Less than fifteen percent, mm. if I'm if I'm if I'm not mistaken. So if he, statistically speaking, the machine, if the machine's only seeing, you know, one face versus one uh, sort of black face versus eight, for instance, white faces, it's gonna be better at identifying more white faces. Yeah. And it's obviously a massive flaw in the system, but it, unless they we're smart enough, the people who were creating this were smart enough to to figure out that, you know, this is going to create some bias in the system. This this flaw was always going to, to occur. Now I'm not I, I'm not an expert in this field or anything, but I just thought, well, I guess the the flaw makes sense uh, if if they didn't do anything yeah. to counteract this.
0: But again, um, as white males perhaps, or at least for me, the the feeling I had was uh, we're all white males, but uh, I just mean f- how it affected me was, and probably very typical in a lot of these situations is I just didn't think about it, right? Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: you know, and, and you know, I suppose you you'd think that they'd consider all these things, right? When when they were building these systems, it's like, oh, okay, it's. Not, I mean, it's we're all we're not we're not all just white males, right? Or or white, white females, but. Yeah, I, I guess when, I don't know. <laughs> My wife made the I, comment,
0: she said, this is why yeah. the diversity aspect is so important when it comes to putting Absolutely. teams together. Because mm-hmm. yeah. had a team of of mm-hmm. various ethnicities and genders and um, orientations yeah. perhaps been on, a, on this programming committee to put this technology together, we probably wouldn't be in this situation. Yeah.
1: That was the big failure, right? Because these teams obviously weren't diverse enough to consider how these flaws
2: could occur in their, in their systems. Yep. Um, yeah, do Justin, th- go ahead. Do you think they care? And what I mean by that is, so, you know, you, you are, as a vendor, in essence, providing the software to a police force or to the FBI or to an intelligence agency. And they're utilizing the software to um, intake, all of this information. And in essence, um, this is just more data sets. So they don't really, do they really even care about the accuracy or are they letting, like, for example, in the UK where that guy pulled the, pulled the thing up over his face or a young, a young gentleman who was of African descent gets stopped by someone and it wasn't a match to whatever it is that they thought they saw yep. over the facial recognition software. Do you think in the background, um, Google or any of these other you know, two or three other major, you know, facial software companies, yeah, yeah, do you the think zone, they even yeah. care if it's accurate? Because they basically <laughs> have the police force going out there and verifying is this a match or not a match? And then now They're helping improve the software for the company. They're the the testers for them, right? So do they even really care if it's even close to accurate? They know that they can get closer to accurate with, as you said, Clark, you know, if there's a predominant amount of information, data sets in this group that is more prevalent in this country, for example. The world isn't all white, but in certain countries it is predominantly white. Predominantly white, white, yeah. Right, Right. yeah. So in, in the background, you know, these IBMs, Google, Amazon that have these facial recognition packages that they're they're trying to sell to these different uh, governments and government agencies and institutions, you know, I don't know that, you know, to, that's the scarier part, right? Like in principle, yeah, if they had a diverse team and there were more voices in the room, maybe someone would be raising their hand and saying, I'm not yeah. so uh, sure uh, um. we should be, yeah.
1: I'm probably being very naive here, but I would think that because, especially in the U.S., because the motives are commercial, right? Yeah, they're in, They're doing this to make money. Mm-hmm. you and there's a lot of competition. You'd think that, and or or maybe not. You would think, but naive Salim would think that, you know, if 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 I were in it to make some money, right? Uh, I'd want to have the best product out there, that actually does what it's what I say it does. Yeah. Uh, when I sell it and say, "Well, you know, I'm wha- whatever Amazon and my thing is better than than Microsoft's, so buy my thing because it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it ha- it's 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 a hundred percent accurate right. versus mm-hmm. their thing where where they haven't considered um, minorities in America, for instance. <laughs> if, if I could go out, to, you know, to the to the potential buyer and say it's more effective, then you'd think that that would also. could be a more profitable solution.
0: Well, the thing. So I, um, interesting. Joy made the comment that even if we are perfectly classified, this still enables surveillance.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm.
0: So even if it all was accurate, because there's that element, that's the, the way it starts out is it's inaccuracies and how it's biases. Well, let's say it's all perfectly working just fine. You still have this massive surveillance system that's just found its way into society with little or no choice in the matter by us as citizens. And that's And that's the scary part, yeah. And that's the Which question. Highly, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, that's how they painted
2: the whole AI being developed on two different tracks. They said, China, unfettered access, even internet access requires facial recognition submission, good social order control apparatus. US, it's not seen as detailed point of view on AI. It's being developed for commercial applications, as you said, as you guys were just alluding to, earn revenue versus serving society, which isn't happening. So they, they painted this picture in that way, right? Where, you know, if we're allowing it to go into this framing, that's the scarier part because it's... It's just, it's this very natural social order control apparatus that could just become integrated into society. But even the way they painted that with that young woman who, you know, she had that punk rock look, she was riding on her skateboard, and but she was also saying, oh, but it's good. This it is the one in easier. China. In China, yeah. Yeah. It, it's good. It makes it easier for me to know if a match has good credit or if they're... You yeah. know, da, 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 da. And I'm like, I'm listening to her. I'm like, she sounds like she's just a plant. And then I saw mm. the way that she was holding her skateboard. And I, I know this is kind of an inside baseball type thing. So she's holding her skateboard with the grip tape facing her body. And anybody who rides a skateboard knows you don't do that because you scuff up all your clothes if you're always holding the skate deck against your body. So to me, that said to her, it said to me, she just started amateur riding hour. a skateboard. It's amateur hour, right. Right, so conspiracy theory Justin puts on his hat and says, all right, that's a plant.
0: <laughs> we can always depend on you for that angle. I know you did that in the pharmacist with, the, yep. um, with, with it. So this is going to become a feature of of any of these reviews, <laughs> Justin, to, to share that. I, I'm not a skateboarder. I would have never noticed that. Um, but what what is interesting about... What I saw there was a I I spent some time living in China. About six months I lived there in, in mm. Shanghai. And I remember having conversations with people about certain things, like even the measurement of the AQI, the Air Quality Index, how... I would make a statement like, which is probably foolishly, that somebody would it was you talked about pollution there like you did the weather. You know it was, mm-hmm. oh, it's uh, the AQI today is uh, 150 or 170. Wow. in Beijing it's 300. God, I'm glad I'm not in Beijing. Um, and I remember <laughs> I one of my colleagues there from 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 China, he said, uh, yeah, today it's only 78. And I looked at my, my software, my app that I had, which showed it was like 140 or something like that. And I said, actually, today's not a good day for this. Like, it's, it's like, it's 140. And I don't think I actually said it because I had actually read in that there had been criticisms about how they publicized their AQI numbers and that the US embassy started publishing its own AQI to be yeah uh, so that's that a you thing. you want to know the there's the Chinese AQI for for Shanghai and then there's the real AQI and usually there was a vast gap but the reason i bring that up is because in his mind 75 was real it was what he was told he believed it and even if he maybe didn't believe it he was never going to let on to me that his that he was not that he was being led astray or that it was incorrect information so um that girl in the documentary who talks about this whole thing from the positive spin yeah. you do have to wonder like if she i mean she's being scored if she appears on a documentary and criticizes this thing and doesn't say things like, it makes it easy for me to meet somebody, my friends or maybe a future companion in life. If all I need to do is look at the fact they have a positive credit score, we can get past all of the learning about who this person <laughs> is and can they be trusted when I have the government giving me a score. Imagine that. You go out for coffee with somebody and you, you seem to like them and say, so, how, what's your social credit score? and they, they give you a really <laughs> high number and you're like good there's going to be a second date here
1: <laughs> oh god that's uh, that's messed up
0: um well maybe just to um, th- this is one we could have easily spent a lot more time on um i guess what you you put a few questions up salim that that you you were pondering and i thought were interesting do we have the right to the image of our face? How do we regain control? Can we regain control of it? <sighs> man, I mean, we could obviously talk about this man. forever, I mean, right? Yeah. That, I think that's that's gone. Now, they have pulled back and I think they said three U.S. cities have banned, like San Francisco and Oakland and a place in Massachusetts um have banned the use of facial recognition technology for uh various things i guess but um yeah. yeah i think it's for me i don't think we can ever regain control of our facial image uh even if they did come up with laws saying you can't do this horses out of the barn this stuff's already in people's databases
1: yeah i mean i i, I do hope that there it that in the future, there is legislation around the right to one's image, so to speak, the the, the image of your face. It's, I, I personally believe in personal, I mean, I'm, I'm very, I'm super keen on my own privacy. And uh, I do try as best I can to, to protect my privacy. And I do feel like the fact that anyone can take the image of your face and use it and, and store it in a database and, and use it against you, right? Or, or use it to uh, to market you something or to surveil you in some way it should not be legal unless you've consented to it. Mm. So there should definitely be legislation around that. And I imagine that this will be more and more of a topic as the as this industry also matures, because there are levels of it not being maybe as mature as or maybe it is right in in certain ways i, I don't know but uh, you know can we re- regain control the easy answer for me at least is yes we we must regain control how are we going to do it that's going to be a little mm. bit more difficult but it, it it starts with with strong legislation right and and different countries will approach this i'm sure in very different ways
0: well canada has i looked this up so canada has legislation that protects Um, privacy however the words facial recognition do not appear anywhere in the wording of that legislation Um, so it gets missed and it's a bit of a loophole Mm. Um, the Cambridge Analytics folks um, which you may have heard of they've been involved in a few things I think they were connected to the Facebook scandal uh, back in 2016 they um, they've been told they're not allowed to do what they do in Canada because they violate privacy laws but The biggest issue isn't so much that the laws don't exist, it's that it doesn't reflect this specific part. It doesn't say facial recognition or it doesn't address, it talks about their uh, financial information maybe that it can't be used incorrectly, but it doesn't say you're not allowed to use their faces to determine things. Um, Which made me think of something else that I remember seeing was um, that they're using I'm not sure if it's in Japan, but in some there's some places where they're actually now going to use facial recognition to um, assess somebody's emotions. Mm. And I'd heard in in the airports this was something that was potentially going to get used and may even be used in some countries for when you pass through customs. And you, or immigration, and you're just before you're about to be questioned about various sensitive topics, or as you're being questioned, this facial recognition software could actually determine: is this guy lying? Is he telling the truth? Yeah, you know where, where, where? Which have you bringing anything into the country? Um, could have. It's always a. They can either decide I'm going to stop everybody and pull them aside and go through their belongings, or they can use their gut. And say, this guy, you know, a little eyebrow twitch or whatever they use to determine someone might be lying. Well, now they have this facial recognition thing that um, may rightly or wrongly be assessing somebody as a a threat or that they're lying. There's so many far-reaching implications here.
2: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's not a matter of, of if but when. I mean... I think uh, major industry is you know looking at all the different applications there's a major insurance company which I'll omit their name for now um that in their a report about a year and a half ago uh, was about um, digital sales or digital um digital sales concepts and uh, property and casualty and life and health, how it's going to make the difference in the future. And there are a couple of companies uh, that are specifically working in the AI space. One of them is using kind of a uh, minority report style AI that can spot shoplifters before they steal. And it's a Japanese startup and they also were hmm. kind of going into biometric biometric personalized ads. I don't know if you remember in the movie Minority Report where Tom Cruise is walking through and the ads you are pounding up. In the documentary where he's, yeah,
0: Guinness uh, and yeah. various things. Wouldn't you like a Guinness? It's all exactly. these things are being thrown <laughs> into his face as he's walking through that concourse.
2: So from the overt to the ones that can impact your freedom, um, yeah, these, these things are things that are going to be directly speaking to the consumer in the public setting. um,
0: That made me think of something, you know, Facebook had that, they have their, uh, it's like an opt out more than anything for targeted advertising. And they spin it in a way that is, do you, do you want to opt out of being sent relevant advertising? Yeah. (laughs) so, the answer to that is either, uh, yes, so just send me a whole bunch of crap, <laughs> or wait a minute, maybe it's in my best interest to submit to their having all my information and then sending me, knowing that I don't like hard alcohol, I'm going going to get only beer commercials thrown at me, <laughs> um, or knowing I'm a baseball fan and not a cricket fan, that I'm going to only see baseball targeted advertising or worse than that. If, if somebody decides to pay a bunch of money from the cricket industry to bring new (laughs) fans on board, they figure I'm not a cricket fan. How do we target this guy to become a cricket fan? Man, it's, it makes me think of, of that, um, how this data is being used and how we, the opt out is spun as a negative.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and there's then the other aspect as well, right? Where for facial recognition, for instance, when governments say, "Well, we use this to for for you know national security to to protect the our citizens," mm. yeah, maybe there's an element of that. Uh, it's not obviously very accurate as we've as we've seen in the documentary, but you know if they can if the government can can show me that nine times out of 10, this has worked to, to save lives, then is then there an argument to say, well, I guess we should all be submitting to, to, to that that, love, that level of surveillance.
0: When you said that, I thought of the Patriot Act, right? Yes, yeah. When yeah, they absolutely. found out that uh, after 9-11, they, they assumed, I guess, that people would want to be kept safe and protected. And so this Patriot Act, kind of showed up or or the uh, the ability to survey people without their knowledge and listening yeah. on recordings or listening on conversations it, all in the everything all in yeah. the good intention of protecting us um that's where you get into the snowden stuff and Edward right Edward yeah. snowden yeah. and what he he revealed as part of his work with the cia yeah i mean it's it's interesting. There's definitely a thread that links together all of this, the privacy, the whether it's listening to your audio, just your voice, or whether it's seeing your face and making determinations in the backdrop is the accuracy pa- aspect of it. Is it even right? Uh, I liked what you said there about the, let's just use the police forces to get it right, perhaps. You know, if they find somebody and it's the wrong identity, well, guess what? That goes into the system. Wrong match. So, that's more information that's now going to be fed into into that system. So, now you've got the guy that was mismatched. He's now in a system. Um, his The guy that they didn't match him up with properly, they've now removed several variables that could show up, that won't show up in the future to re- flag the wrong guy again because it's Crispened even further the ability to match up the guy they're trying to match up with. Uh, boy, oh better boy, city to in. do
2: your trial and error. I mean, UK, London's got what? What did they say? Six million cameras,
0: I think, yeah, across the yeah. city. Yeah. What I liked just on the London topic was when the police officer said uh, when when they they confronted when he was they had that conversation with the police officers after getting that one guy who covered up his face and telling him that by nature him covering his face they have a right to stop and talk to him. Um, I think it was the Baroness lady said um, yeah. um, this this is known to be very inaccurate and the police officer actually said well actually yeah you're right about that. And I found it funny he said that and then but they also know it so I guess as they do this they also, which is a good thing I guess, realize that this isn't spot on technology and that they've got a, they're just because the system says they've got a match doesn't mean they've got a match. Yeah. Well, oh, one thing before we go on, um, I want to talk about Tay. Tay was the, mm. um, Microsoft <laughs> Twitter bot, I guess that, uh, yeah, was, the cr- AI bot, was yeah. created and that within several hours became a misogynist, racist, <laughs> um, <laughs> asshole, basically. Um, yeah. I I looked at it into that a little bit um and they talked about um where is it here It said um when Tay Tay was presented with the question did the holocaust happen his response was it was made up <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah and and I understand Incredible. the way this happened was that uh, people just saw a way to, to manipulate this thing by feeding it. It was like trolls that just said, we're going to feed this bot all this misinformation and, and see what happens. And very quickly, uh, it, bad things happened. Um, and, you know, you if you replace Tay with like just a regular Joe out there who's just minding his own business and gets flooded with inaccuracies and, you know, I'll I'll use, like, people, members of my family, even, who, who will hear something and believe it to be true, and not vet it with anybody. Um, not obviously to that degree, is something like the Holocaust, but, you know, how many times have you seen a headline and skipped past it and took the headline and said, oh, wow, that's terrible, but then didn't bother to read deeper into the article? Mm-hmm. Um, again, another topic that we could we could really go uh, there's so much to unpack here but um if we're going to have time for oh um i one thing i wanted to say was compared to other documentaries the great hack mm. which we tackled uh paul and i tackled a number mm-hmm. of episodes back i think the great hack is a better documentary for getting into Hands down. into mm. this um there's there's also this other one I haven't seen yet, Social Dilemma. Dilemma, is it? yeah, yeah. That one I've heard is is good as well. Um, it's
2: well done. They dramatize it a bit, but it does a good job of tying all the pieces together and and the the real ramifications on mental health and things like that.
0: Salim, take us um, into a lighter topic. Tell us about yes. what's going on. Although it's a a dark topic mixed with some levity it is uh, um, yeah take us to the strange it, news segment <laughs> it's slightly it's slightly dark but
1: um but also a little bit uh light-hearted as well which is which is nice yeah so uh, our uh, strange news story for today takes us uh somewhere a little bit uh, or some, i wouldn't say unusual but uh to a country that we haven't covered before which is which is new zealand and i'll keep this short and sweet the um the title of this article um, is uh, "Raising a Laugh at Funerals is No uh, Dying Art for This Colorful New Zealand Coffin Maker," and it's a, it's about a coffin maker who made a coffin for for this guy. And I'll tell you what I'll just read the the first few uh, sentences from from the article itself. Uh, when the pallbearers brought Paul, sorry, Phil McLean's coffin into the chapel, there were gasps before a wave of laughter rippled through the uh, hundreds of mourners. The coffin was a giant cream donut, <laughs> uh, and so basically, this uh, this guy Phil who who died uh, decided that um, his his uh, funeral is going to be a bit of a, I guess, a, a lighthearted event, and uh, chose this uh, this person. Um, I think yeah, his name is Ross Hall in in New Zealand, who makes. Funny, interesting coffins, and uh, yeah. So the this Phil guy, he he chose a, a cream donut.
0: So what does it look like? Can you can do you have a picture of it? Oh, I see it here. They're loading it into the back of a
1: into a hearse. A hearse. Yeah. It looks
0: like a big hot dog or something.
1: But it does look like a bit hot dog. But I guess yeah, this is a, what they would call it. A,
0: eclair a a, or
1: an eclair? Yeah, it kind of looks like looks like an eclair, doesn't it? Anyway, <laughs> it's it's pretty hilarious to be honest and. I, I like that. It's um personally speaking, I, I I don't think anyone is a fan of funerals, but if uh <laughs> if they if there's a reason or, or a way to make a funeral a little bit more lighthearted, then I'm all for that. And I find I found this brilliant.
0: Yeah, as I googled it I see there's a bunch of different uh, there's images of this, but then there's also I guess other ideas people have brought to the funeral scene was uh, it looks like a a color a coffin that's um, looks like a Cadbury chocolate bar that's unwrapping
1: <laughs> there's the one that looks like uh, Legos as well
0: yeah fire truck one that looks like a fire <laughs> truck or looks like a lego fire truck that's um interesting that you see, i mean it does bring some it lightens the mood a little bit, uh, overshadowing the sadness. When one article describes it as, I guess, uh, that's a question I would have is, who has the right to bring that to the funeral? Uh, I would say the guy that died has uh, every right to so, do yeah. what he wants, <laughs> to- but should he care about what his relatives might think of that or no it's your funeral you go out how you want to go out
1: i don't know i think if it's if it's your funeral you you should go out the way you want to go out i don't know what do you think justin
2: yeah okay (laughs) this is a really tough one a personal view my personal view is um I don't care what you do with my body <laughs> <You> just <laughs> i'm gone <laughs> i mean it really doesn't matter yeah you know it really doesn't matter it, it I, I would like to make it a nice thing where you can go spread my ashes in a beautiful place and you can go enjoy that place forget about mm-hmm. the spreading my ashes part it's more about yeah you you go enjoy that place but uh that's that's uh that's a selfish wish i i've I, if anything, would just want people to have a celebration and just enjoy themselves. So I don't care what happens with the body. I'm gone. Who cares?
1: Yeah. I think that, you know, just as far as funerals are concerned, for me personally, I think it should be not necessarily a a sad event where you mourn the loss of someone that has that passed. But maybe I'm just being too much of an optimist here, but I want it to be a celebration of the mm-hmm. person's life. And I think that's... Maybe a point that is sometimes maybe missed in in, in funerals.
0: Well, hard to say, but yeah, gentlemen, mm. my um, my Mac battery is telling me it's going to move into sleep mode if I don't uh, plug it in, and I don't. I'm nowhere near <laughs> the plug or the um, the transformer to go do that. So, at risk of us losing this episode at a weird oh, time, no. I'll uh, I'll say let's wrap it. Um, As always, good to get you guys together from Japan and and appreciate your perspectives uh, in the beginning there about the vaccination. And uh, Salim, one day you might get that jet ski or that beach buggy, and you could, once you save up your money from your insurance uh, career, you can maybe (laughs) live out some of those lifeguarding um, dreams and um, buy yourself a copy of Microsoft Simulator X, which I think is coming out or has already come out (laughs) yeah (laughs) but as always gentlemen great to uh get together on this uh podcast and uh, appreciate your your time and input likewise thanks for having Thank you and
1: and and congratulations on uh the 50th episode as well by the way
0: thank you thank you yes uh we we did this is either going to be episode 51 or 52 i'm not certain yet (laughs) um So it's, sometimes it's, these are episodes out of time or sequence. Damn,
2: I was hoping we'd be season two, episode
0: one. (laughs) Ah, yes, actually, that's a good point. I did, I do have an opportunity now to change that and make a season two, which actually, actually, I think I might do that. Um, I never really intended to have seasons, but um, the way the Mac system or the Apple podcasts, it has a seasonal component to it that I fell Mm. into almost by mistake, not realizing that to get out of it, I would actually have to go and adjust all the episodes and remove their season number, and I'm afraid Mm. I would screw everything up if I did that. So, Mm. you may get your wish. This could be episode (laughs) one of season two. So, with that, let's close it out.